I want to go ahead and invite Ms. Irene Hoyer up to read for us out of God's Word. And so if you would please stand with me out of respect for God's Word, we're going to be reading Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. If you're following along with our Bible reading plan, uh, you know that standing in for God's Word is something that we saw happen in Ezra a few weeks ago. And so this isn't something we just make up. It's something that's even in the Word of God because the Word of God is over us and is our authority. And so, um, Irene, pass it off to you to read for us this morning. Good morning, church. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose, make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, but he powerfully works within me. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word, and thank you for this time that we could come and we could hear your word. Father, just as come to a topic even today that's a hard one for a lot of us as we talk about suffering, um, just pray and acknowledge in, in that prayer that you would work in me through your spirit. Just as Paul said, that it's you who powerfully works within him. It's not him. And I just, Father, I recognize that and just pray that you would speak through me this morning, that it wouldn't be me speaking, but it would be simply me communicating what you've already communicated to your people. And I pray as such, Lord, that your people in this space would be moved by your spirit, that your spirit would be working in each one of us, revealing and opening up our eyes that we might see you we might know you more. And so that ultimately, we might become more conformed into your likeness, that we could bear fruit for your glory and for your kingdom. And so, Lord, please, please do that work today in us as your people. I ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So, if you remember last week, we came face to face with a, a, a very difficult statement that Paul makes in the scripture in which we read this morning, where he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings. And so we started to talk about suffering last week, and we talked about how the world views suffering one particular way. In fact, we talked last week that, that in our culture, in our world, the place that we live, it seems to be that the chief aim of man is to eliminate as much suffering and to find as much comfort as we possibly can in this world. And yet the Scripture has a very different view. And so we spent last week trying to get ourselves anchored to God's view of suffering. And so we looked at two or three specific truths last week and just want to go over those. Those three truths were suffering is always going to be with us in this world. Remember, we talked about that, that as much as we'd like to see it go away, Jesus promises that there's going to be trials and tribulations in this world as long as we're here. Now, we hope for the world in which it's gone, he promises to bring to us, but nonetheless, this is a truth that we have 
Another truth we looked at last week is that suffering in the hands of God is always purposeful. That God, he can take that suffering as hard as it is, and he can use it, and he can mold us and shape us, and he can bring it to good things and bear great fruit out of that. The third truth that we looked at last week is that we are called to share in his suffering. We're called to share in his suffering. Now, if these things are truly true, which I believe that they are, particularly two and three, then it leads us to ask the question that we ended last week with, which is this, is suffering then actually something that's desirable? Should we as God's people actually pursue suffering instead of comfort? I mean, practically speaking, what are we to do with these three truths in our lives? And this is what I want to look at today. Now, to help us, let's start where we left off last week, which was in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Paul says this, and I'm going to just point out a few things. He says, I count as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Now, it's fascinating, we, we need to see that, that Paul's not seeing these things as anything but truly lost. They really are hard things for him to lose. That's why he talks about the suffering of these things. And sometimes we can over-spiritualize and say, oh, this is easy, but it's not. It's not even easy for Paul. He says, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul sees suffering. That it has an end. It is not an end. And that's a big difference. It has an end goal in mind, but suffering in and of itself is not the end. For Paul, and through much of Scripture, life comes through death. Joy comes through suffering. To Paul, every opportunity to suffer is an opportunity to be more united to Jesus in the suffering that he experienced in this world when he was here. Two things specifically. To be more conformed to Jesus' image... See that in this text where it says that he desires to be like him. And then the second is to be tied to his hope, specifically his resurrection. And so I want to quickly look at these two ends of suffering as we move on in this discussion. The first end of suffering is to be conformed into the likeness of Jesus, to be conformed to Jesus. Back in Colossians, Paul says this in verse 24. You remember this. He says, In my flesh... I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, this is a really strange statement, isn't it? You're like, okay, what does this mean? Now, remember, Paul is writing this in prison. In fact, our image on all of our slides is a picture of Paul in chains writing the book of Colossians. Like, he's in prison writing this, and Paul says this really strange statement that feels really bold, where he says, in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. What is Paul talking about? What could possibly be lacking in Christ's afflictions? Now, here's what we know Paul doesn't mean. He doesn't believe that suffering, his suffering, 
adds anything to the forgiveness of sin which is granted to us through Jesus' suffering on the cross. That has been fully attained by Jesus, and it lacks nothing. Amen? That lacks nothing, meaning that his blood is fully sufficient. Very specifically, the fullness of your sin is covered by the fullness of his blood. All of it. All of it. Everything you have done, everything you're currently doing right now, some of which you don't even know about, and everything that you're going to do in the future has been fully covered by his blood. Nothing needs to be added to the blood of Jesus Christ. So what is Paul talking about? Well, most scholars believe that there are two things that are lacking that Paul is referring to. First is the full harvest of Christ's work that has yet to be accomplished. So think about that. Did everybody who was going to come to know Jesus come to know Jesus the moment that he rose from the dead? No. Even today, we're seeing new people come into the kingdom of God. And so God is still making for himself a people. And so what we see in this specifically is as Paul is suffering specifically to share the gospel, that more people are coming to know that gospel through that suffering and filling up the kingdom of God. That's still God's work. It's still the Spirit doing the work through Paul. But as Paul does that, that's what we're seeing. More people coming into the kingdom. The second thing, which leads to the point that I'm trying to make here in this part, is that Christ's sufferings are still at work conforming Paul fully into the image of Jesus. In other words, Jesus' suffering covered Paul's sins, and as Paul suffers... It makes him more and more like Jesus. This is what Paul is talking about. This is what he's talking about. And so I want to make this really clear by saying a very definitive statement that's going to feel very contrary, as as I said many things last week that would do that. It says this, There is no true following of Jesus that does not lead us into and through suffering. Take up your cross. Die to yourself. Lose your life. Don't seek to save your life. The first will be last. The last will be first. And over and over again in Scripture, we see this idea. And this is missing in much of Christian faith today. True discipleship is following Jesus. To follow Jesus is to be like Jesus. And that inevitably is going to lead us to suffering. Now, we're going to see specifics of that suffering and and that conforming work in just a moment. But as we walk through that, Jesus is conforming us more and more into his image as we walk through those sufferings. But it's not just about being conformed to the likeness of Jesus that is the end of suffering for Paul. It's also that we get to be tied to his hope. Romans 6.5. We heard this echoed in Philippians that we read a moment ago. But he says this, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now this absolutely means physical death, but it also means many other components of our lives. There is a power of resurrection that we as the people of God get to experience every time we experience a death in our lives. That we have the hope that God is going to bring about a resurrection. We sang about that today. He's going to bring about that power of resurrection in our lives. So here's where I want to turn, and I want to get really, really practical for all of us 
as we move into the rest of our time together. There's a book that I read a few months ago that gives a great illustration that I think helps us grasp this idea, and much of what I'm going to be sharing the rest of our time is going to be stuff that's gleaned from that book, and so it's going to be hard to quote it, but I want you to know that it's there nonetheless. The book's called The J-Curve by Paul Miller, and he gives a great example, a great illustration about suffering in the life of a Christian. Guess what that illustration is? It's a J-Curve. It's just a J, so it's going to be super easy for us to remember. So here's, here's what this curve looks like in the life of Jesus. Right, Jesus started in heaven, didn't he? He started with God, fullness of God, glory of God, in heaven, complete relationship with God. But Jesus voluntarily entered into suffering by laying those things down and coming down to earth to incarnate. We just celebrated Christmas, which was all about this process. And he voluntarily stepped into that kind of suffering. And ultimately, it led to him going to the bottom of that curve, which is death. Jesus dying upon the cross. Again, Jesus voluntarily entered into this moment of suffering where he went from heaven, lived 33 some odd years here on this world, in this world, experiencing all kinds of challenges, suffering, difficulty, emotional suffering, betrayal, all kinds of things, ultimately to the point of death. And then we see him raised up again. Jesus is resurrected. And not only is he resurrected, but Jesus is glorified. Above all other names, Jesus is glorified. This is what a J-curve is. It's walking through that idea of entering into suffering, even to the point of death, and then letting and waiting for God to bring about resurrection in our lives. Paul wants us to share in this kind of suffering. He wants us to experience, for sure, the back part of this J-curve. He wants us to see that resurrection in our lives. There should be a willingness for us to go from here to down here so that we can then wait for God to bring about resurrection in our lives. And in John Miller's book, he lays out three types of J-curves that I think can really give us some illumination about the practicalities of how this plays out in our lives. And you'll see it is extremely biblical. So three J-curves. The first is the suffering J-curve. This is for all the suffering that we experience that comes from outside of us. So think about yourself and think about all the evil and the brokenness of sin and the brokenness of this world coming at you. This is the suffering J-curve. This is when you get the phone call that says you have been diagnosed with cancer. This is when a loved one passes away. This is when someone hurts you, betrays you, injures you, makes fun of you. Like it's suffering that comes from outside of you towards you. This is pain and it hurts. It's something none of us ask for. It's something none of us want. So think about this in the scriptures. So think J-curve. Think Old Testament and Joseph. Joseph you remember in the scriptures, Joseph started off being loved by his father. He gets the coat of many colors. It looks like everything's going to go great for Joseph. He has this dream that says he's going to rule over his brothers. That makes them mad. And then Joseph begins to enter into the J-curve of going down into death as they sell him into slavery. And as he's going down that path, he hits rock bottom after Potiphar's wife tells 
her husband, that Joseph tried uh, to do inappropriate things with her, and so he ends up in prison, the bottom of the J-curve. He's now dead to any hope he had, stuck in prison. Remember the story, though? What happens? As he's at the bottom of that curve, God brings resurrection out of Joseph and ends up putting Joseph in second most powerful position in the entire land of Egypt so that not just he could experience that, but that he could be a part of saving his entire family and thousands upon thousands of others that were going through the famine. You see the J-curve in Joseph's life? See how that's working itself out in his life? Think about Lazarus. Lazarus is looking at his life. He's super close to Jesus. He knows Jesus better than most other people. It says that he was a dear friend of Jesus. He gets sick. And what he doesn't realize is he's getting ready to enter into a J-curve where he ultimately ends up dying. And Jesus very specifically raises up Lazarus from the dead. He glorifies Lazarus. He, he begins to exalt Lazarus. And can you imagine? I always think, I love Lazarus' stories. Like, what, what is scary for Lazarus from now on? Lazarus, I'm sorry. We just found out you have cancer. Oh, that's okay. I've already died. It can't get any worse from that. He's already raised me from the dead once, so I know he can do it again. So, such is life. But this is the J-curve in Lazarus' life, and it's the J-curve in so many other parts of our lives. In your Bible reading plan, you're going to read in just a couple of days about Paul being shipped to Rome, and there's a shipwreck, and Paul ends up floating around in the Mediterranean Sea. So he's going into that J-curve, and through that, God resurrects that whole situation and brings glory to himself. We see this process over and over again that when suffering comes from outside of us into our lives, that God is able and capable of taking that suffering and resurrecting it in our life or in the life of somebody else. Every single time that pain finds us, we have the opportunity to either try and fight to get ourselves out of that space, shake our fists at God and say, why would you allow us to do this or this to happen to us, or... Look to Jesus and the suffering he experienced and enter into that, trusting in his character, trusting in who he is, and praying that he would bring about resurrection through that difficulty and keep our eyes open to see God work in miraculous ways. This is the whole foundation of Romans 8.28, which so often gets quoted to those that are struggling. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Listen, this type of resurrection may not always be something we experience in this world. I mean, Paul was ultimately beheaded and died, but is he going to experience resurrection? Absolutely. As he suffered and as he was in prison writing the book of Colossians, is he going to experience the fruit from that in eternity as that book went out to all the people in Colossae and Laodicea all the way up into this day as we study it? Paul is going to bear that fruit. Paul is going to, to gain that reward from that work in the moment of that suffering. Sometimes our suffering actually helps bring resurrection to someone else's life, doesn't it? 
This is exactly what's happening to Paul. He's in prison. And he says, I rejoice because I'm able to now write to you. And as I'm writing to you, you're being encouraged. and You're being strengthened in your own faith. And so Paul sees this. And so Paul is able to go, I rejoice in my suffering. I I praise God for my suffering. Now, I want to be clear. We don't seek out this kind of suffering, do we? We don't want this kind of suffering to come to us. Like We're going we're to try to avoid this kind of suffering with wisdom in our lives. We're going to try to avoid this kind of suffering through doctors and medication and healthy living and all those types of things. And, and when suffering like this does come, we can still pray and ask the Lord to bring about resurrection in our lives by healing us, by ending that time of suffering so that He could be glorified, so that someone else's faith might be stirred. Like We don't seek out this kind of suffering, but nonetheless, at times, it comes, doesn't it? And the point is this, what are you going to do when you're in the middle of that J-curve? When you're in the midst of that J-curve, what are you going to do? Some of you are in the middle of that J-curve right now. Someone outside of you is causing you pain. This has been a brutal week around the church. We've had like eight funerals that we've had to prepare for because there's people that are suffering and dying and losing loved ones. Like some of you are in the midst of that right now. And what will you do in the midst of that? Will you enter into the sufferings of Jesus and be thankful that Jesus went through something very similar like you did and that he proved through his victory that he has the power to bring about resurrection? And that you would then fix your eyes upon him, waiting for that resurrection to happen. Waiting for him to bring about good in the midst of that. Yes, grieving. Yes, experiencing loss. But trusting in Jesus. Or will you shake your fists at God? This is an opportunity for us. Because we're all going to come to this type of J-curve in our lives. And you know what? As you wait for God to bring about resurrection, it's rarely going to come about the way you thought it would. I highly doubt that Joseph, when he was sitting in prison in Egypt, knew that one day he was going to be second most powerful man in the entire country. I doubt when he was praying that God would do something out of this, that God would make something take place out of this, that he had in mind becoming the second most powerful man in the most powerful empire of the day. We don't know what God is going to do. And so we must trust that in the midst of our suffering, he's at work doing things that we may not expect, doing things that we may not even be looking for. And so we need to be watchful and prayerful instead of accusing God, asking God to help our eyes see him move in these miraculous ways. Such an important thing thing for us. What's your expectation? There is real hope and real joy in seeing our suffering through this type of lens, scripturally speaking. So that's the suffering J-curve. The next one I want to talk about is the love J-curve. Now, interestingly, this type of suffering we are supposed to pursue, aren't we? We are to seek out this kind of suffering just like Jesus did. 
to try and share this type of suffering that Jesus went through in the lives of others. This type of suffering is when love drives you to step into and deal with pain that is outside of yourself, to go after evil that's affecting others. So you see someone else in suffering, and you, out of love, step into that suffering, to absorb that suffering, to bring Christ into that suffering, to love in the midst of that suffering. This is exactly what Christ did. This is the whole reason he came to this planet and to this earth. This is a dying that comes from love, and it is deeply painful at times, isn't it? Can you love anybody without suffering? That's like synonymous with each other. If you love somebody and you experience no kind of dying to yourself, it's not real love. It might be an affection, it might be a feeling and an emotion, but it's not real love. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. And this is our example of what it means to step into a love type of J-curve. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. We love that, don't we? We all love to empty ourselves for the sake of somebody else. He emptied himself by taking on the very form of a servant, So he emptied himself, he became a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Death? Even death on a cross? Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." This can be huge in our lives, and it can be really small in our lives. Let me give you a small example. Uh, A few years ago, my daughter Samantha uh, desperately wanted a slinky for Christmas. Not a big deal. Um, She wanted not one of those plastic slinkies, but a real metal slinky. All right? And, And so we bought her a real metal slinky for Christmas. And so Christmas Day, she's playing with it. She's excited to have this slinky. I don't know why. I don't know where she got the love of slinkies, but nonetheless, she had it. And you know if you're a parent and you've known anybody that's ever had a metal slinky, they last for a grand total of 35 seconds before they get bent in such a way that they're no longer slinking the way that they're supposed to, or they get tangled, forcing you as a parent to sit there for like seven hours trying to figure out how to untangle the stinking thing, right? And so this happened to my daughter, and it's on Christmas Day, and my daughter is like super upset because her slinky's already tangled up. Now here's the thing, she's hurting. Now you may not think it's important, you may think it's a silly reason to hurt, but as a kid, like this is a huge deal, and it was an important thing for her. And so here, as a, as a father, I see that hurt, and my love for her caused me to step into that space and sacrifice another five to ten dollars, I don't even remember how much it was, to buy another one. And you say that's super small, but isn't that love? Isn't it that over and over and over and over again in the life of a child and a parent? 
Don't, doesn't a parent do that day in and day out where they enter into the hurts of their kids, they enter into the lives of their kids, and they die to themselves so that their kids can be raised up, so that they can flourish, so that they can become independent? So I had to give up that $5 so that I could see the resurrection of my daughter and joy in her life, right? Again, it's small stuff, but it's also the huge stuff, isn't it? This is what causes someone like Seth and Megan Phillips. Remember them? A couple weeks ago, we prayed for them. And they left their entire lives, comfort, security, families, friends, to enter into the darkness of people in Japan that they might experience the resurrection of Jesus. They entered into suffering voluntarily for the sake of somebody else. That's love. That's what love is about. This is the kind of thing that, that drives people to do all kinds of things. And so people would ask, well, should we pursue suffering? Yes. Absolutely we should pursue suffering. This kind of suffering. Because we are to pursue love. Two great commands. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor. How can we say we're following Jesus if we're not entering into, on a regular basis, with the people that are around us, into love type of J-curves, where you die to yourself so that someone else may be raised up? This is the gospel. I cannot express the conforming work that God has done in my heart and Karen's life through the work of adoption, for example. Where you step into someone else's suffering, and you suffer yourself, and you see God do miraculous things, and in the process, he has made me see what love is in a whole new perspective. See, this kind of suffering, it conforms us, and it also helps us to then take joy in seeing God raise up and bring resurrection in those spaces. How much joy is Seth and Megan going to get every time they baptize somebody in the name of Jesus Christ because they were willing to lay down their lives for somebody else? So this, this is the gospel. This is the very act of love that causes us to lay down our hopes and our dreams, our desires, our life to give to another so that their life could be exalted. We enter in absorbing their pain so yes, church, pursue suffering because we're to pursue love. We've seen this in your Bible reading plan. Nehemiah, Ezra, they're in the comforts of another kingdom and they see the suffering of their people and instead of staying in the comforts of their kingdom, what did they do? They wept and they prayed and they moved themselves to Jerusalem to help rebuild the walls. They didn't have to. But they did. And as a result, they got to see God do amazing things. Love sees the brokenness of sin and it steps into the world just like Jesus did. Bringing about resurrection in someone else's life at our expense. Isn't that what Jesus did? And so we care for the orphan. We care for the homeless. We care for the poor. We, we care for the refugee, and we don't just do it from a distance. We're to step into those lives and lay hours down for them. We're to pursue 
this kind of suffering. Not to just wait around for it. Can you imagine if Jesus just waited around for it? Imagine if Jesus said, well, I'll get to it sooner or later. Or maybe if they say the right thing or if they do the right thing, then I'll go and I'll lay myself down for them. No, no. While we were enemies, while we weren't asking for it, while we didn't even want it, Jesus came out of heaven and he died so that he could be raised and that we could find life in him. We pursue this kind of pain. When you step into it and you experience that kind of pain, you will be able to rejoice in seeing God bring about life. Bring about joy. Bring about resurrection in the life of somebody else. Are you missing out on that? The other promise is that anything you lay down in this life for Jesus' sake is going to be given to you a hundredfold in, in, in eternity. Paul knew that. And that's why Paul was able to say, like, for, for you I'm suffering because I love you. And he hadn't even met the people in Colossae. The last J-curve I want to point to this morning is the repentance J-curve. Welcome to the hardest of them all. At least this is my personal experience. This is dying to the evil that is in you. This is you recognizing that sometimes you're the problem. This is recognizing that's, that, that we are sinners. You know, it's interesting when we as Christians start talking about things like sin. Oftentimes, I, I don't think we give sin enough credit. And what I mean by that is we kind of paint it only in these bad lights. And it is bad in the light of Scripture for sure. But we also sell it short. And I think sometimes even with our kids, we forget to tell them that sin feels really good. At least for a while, doesn't it? Sin makes a lot of promises in our lives. Sin can really satisfy you temporarily. Sin can really make you feel a lot of pleasure temporarily. See, we want to say that sin's always this bad thing that we want to get rid of, but the reality of it is we love sin in our lives because sin feels really good and it feels really natural. And sometimes it promises to be really fun, doesn't it? Now, we know the end result of sin, just like Jesus does, just like the Father does. And so he says, watch out for it. But it promises all kinds of things. And this is my point, is that when you realize that, then you realize to dying to that hurts. It hurts. It's painful. Dying to our lusts. Dying to our pride, dying to our desire to control everything, dying to our ability to justify ourselves. Man, these are some of the hardest things in the world for us to do because it feels so natural. Killing sin is rarely easy and it's rarely fast. It's rarely easy and it's rarely fast. Again, if you're in our Bible reading plan, I don't know if you, if you catch I'm trying to sell that right now. Um, but, but here's the point. It's all over Scripture. Like, I don't have to make these things up. Like Ezra, if you remember the story of Ezra, he goes to Israel and he reads the law and God reveals that they're sinning. And that what the way they're sinning is that they're marrying women from other parts of the, the region. So Moabites and all these kinds of things. And you think, well, that's terrible. Well, here's the thing. The problem isn't that they're different ethnicity. The problem is, is that they're not worshiping the one true God. 
So here's how we know this. Ruth is a Moabite. Ruth worships God. Ruth marries Boaz. And Jesus actually comes from Ruth and Boaz. The problem was, in the people's day, is that they were marrying these other women who were bringing in the worship of other gods into their lives. And so Ezra says, we need to repent of this. We need to turn away from this. And if you remember Ezra, what did they do? They actually had to put those wives away. you imagine how much pain that caused? To hear what God truly wanted and where life truly was, and to have to, to, to actually make steps that caused such pain and suffering? That's hard. Being obedient to Jesus is rarely easy. Anybody here experience that, or is it just me? I have to die to myself over and over again, and it's hard, and it takes prayer, and it takes accountability, and it takes the, the community of faith around me. This may be you dying to pride when someone else is given credit for something that you did and what's inside of you wants to fight for that right and fight for that acknowledgement and fight for people to value you and know you. Did Jesus do that? Or did Jesus die to that and say, God, I trust you. You're going to exalt me. You're going to glorify me. You're going to deal with this in your own right and your own time. Dying to our lusts, and that's hard, isn't it? They're lusts because they're part of us. And we crave it. We crave it. Some of y'all crave chocolate. I'm not saying that's a sin. I'm just saying that you crave it. To say no to that craving, there's a part of you that has to die, doesn't it? Now you think, well, that's just chocolate. But some of you know how hard it is to say no to chocolate. But what about the other lusts of our lives? What about the other things that we covet? See, to die to those things means we have to be content with what God has given to us. We have to rejoice in what God has given to us. And we have to believe that he actually knows what's best for us. This is never easy for us. It takes dying. Whether it's that or anger or so many other things I could go about. And later in Colossians, we're going to talk specifically about this, but look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 5-10. through 10. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Have you felt the sufferings of putting these things away? Maybe your identity is in the fact that you're the funniest guy at work or the funniest gal at work, and the reason everybody thinks you're so funny is because you're so good at the dirty jokes. Will you die to that part of your identity for the sake of Christ? And trust that his value is more important than theirs? Your anger, it feels really good when somebody wrongs you to light into them, doesn't it? Is that just me? Okay, thank you. Right? Like when someone does something wrong to you, it feels good to hit back. And you have to die to that. And trust the Lord to take vengeance. To take, trust the Lord to bring that person to repentance. And this is hard. And it brings about another J-curve, which is the J-curve of actually forgiving somebody. 
You have to die to your anger and die to your desire to to see them hurt the way you hurt and trust the Lord to take care of that. Have you experienced this kind of suffering? If you haven't, and you've never felt the suffering of turning in repentance away from your flesh, how can you be the first and only disciple in history that this wasn't expected of you? You're not. It's expected of all of us. That's why over and over and over again in Scripture, he says, repent and believe. Repent and believe. This is hard. This is the only way that we're going to find life. We die to these things so that Jesus might be life for us. You die to your lust so that you can find that Jesus is truly the satisfying one. If you think that you can just improve your sin and have salvation, and I'm not going to really be all that concerned about it. I'm not going to really fight it the way that Scripture tells me to. I'm just going to improve my sin. I'm just going to tell you, you're dead wrong. Paul Miller actually says this in his book. He says, you can't improve the flesh. You have to kill it. The cross is a place for dying, not improving. The cross is a place for dying, not improving. We don't improve ourselves through Christianity. We die to ourselves in Christianity. It is no longer I who lives. It's Christ who lives in and through me. So get busy killing sin, or sin will be busy killing you. The famous John Owen said, Do you want to experience resurrection from your sin? Then share in his suffering. Die to it. And that's hard. I truly believe that many people are so wrapped up with avoiding suffering in these and other areas that we miss the whole point of discipleship and following Jesus. And therefore, we're not bearing fruit for him. We're not bearing fruit for his kingdom. We're not experiencing the resurrection in our lives that he wants to let us experience, that he wants to work through us and in us. And terrifyingly enough, I believe that because we're so focused on our comforts, I think there are many who will never experience the power of his resurrection in eternity. At least not the resurrection to life. And that is scary. Paul so hoped and believed in the power of the resurrection in all of these areas of life that he was willing to lay himself down and put himself into the hands of God, are we? So that God can raise us up. He's so deeply held to this truth of promise and power to raise up all that he laid down. He says, I, I count everything as a loss. Everything, all things, it's all lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, and the power of his resurrection. Do you want that? I do. We won't experience the power of his resurrection without dying first, friends. And I know we want to. Wouldn't it be nice to experience the power of resurrection without dying first? I hope the rapture comes, but that may be the only hope we have. But this is the point. So share in the suffering of Christ. Let the suffering that comes to you drive you 
to look to Jesus and put your hope in the resurrection. That the suffering that you see out in the world drive you to love other people the way Jesus did so that he can be that hope of resurrection through you. Step into it. Enter into the suffering of repentance that you might experience freedom from your sin and the resurrection of life in him. I want to say specifically to those who are in this space right now that have unconfessed sin in your life, you know it's there. And you know that it's keeping you from really truly following after Jesus because you're just not willing to put it to death. You know, the very first thing that you can do to put your sin to death is to confess it to someone else. And if you haven't done that yet, you will not experience the resurrection power of Jesus in your life in the midst of that sin. You won't. You're going to continually struggle with it. It's going to continually master you. And I want to just encourage you this morning, before you leave, if that's you in this space, if you have unrepented sin that you're not willing and have yet to be willing to lay down before the Father, go and take it to someone, confess it today. They, they don't do anything. But for whatever reason, God has said that bringing those things to light is healing. That bringing those things to light brings freedom. So I want to encourage us this morning, church, to step into suffering. To not be a people who see it as our chief aim to avoid it all the time. But to truly love people the way Jesus did. And ask him, where do you want me to step into the brokenness of this world? And to kill the sin that is so devastating many of our lives. I just want you to bow your heads and I want you to close your eyes. I'm going to pray here in just a minute. And if you're joining us online, I would encourage you to do the same. And I just want you to ask this question to yourself in the next couple of moments of just stillness. Are you experiencing suffering in such a way of your life right now that's causing you to doubt the goodness of God? Just lay that before him. And I want you to just think about his resurrecting power and how over and over and over again, God has proven himself worthy of trust and dependence to bring life even out of that death. And just ask him, Lord, help me to see your work. I want you to think of your life and I want you to think where are you entering into the suffering of love for the people around you? If you're not, you're missing one of the great calls of what it is to be a believer. To see God work through you bringing about life where there is death. And do you need to answer a call to step into something? Maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a coworker where you lay something down of yourself, your time, your gifts, your treasures, whatever it is, to help someone else the way Jesus helped you. Maybe you've been hesitant to do that. Maybe you've just been too selfish with your time and your life. Confess that to the Lord like His grace is sufficient for you. 
As we end, are you in a space right now where you are enslaved to unconfessed sin in your life? You have no fight in you to kill sin. I just want you to think about how much danger you are in if you are okay with the sin that you know is in your life. Will you put it to death? Will you confess it? I want to invite our prayer counselors and elders and our pastors up here to the front, and we're going to sing a song about coming to the altar. And if you want to have someone pray for you because you're weak and faint-hearted and struggling because of suffering that's in your life, or you want to pray with someone about how to love others, or maybe it's just hard and you're struggling to have the endurance to do that. Or maybe you want to confess your sin We want to do that during this time before we take our communion this morning. Father, I pray for the next few moments that, Lord, you would just do in us what only your Spirit can do. And I pray, Father, that we would be a people that are willing to share in the sufferings of our Lord. To share in the sufferings of our Savior. That we would love like He loves. That we would hate sin like he hates sin. That we would trust you to raise up from the ashes beauty. Father, may we be a people who share in the sufferings of your son. And I pray for boldness for those that are struggling with unconfessed sin in their lives, that they would even this morning take a step to find freedom and life and resurrection pray these things in your name. Would you please stand with me? And as we sing, if you want prayer, uh, please come down to the front um, and, and talk to one of our elders, pastors, and prayer counselors.